Today is the first Sunday of Advent. We have just uh, finished going through the book of Titus last week. Now, as we enter the Advent season, we're going to take these four Sundays of Advent, and we're going to look at the songs of Advent. Today, we're going to look at the song of Zechariah. Next week, we will look at the song of the angels. We'll look at the song of Mary, and we'll look at the song of Simeon. And as we go through these, and as we look at these songs of Advent, we don't want to just look at them as something that happened in history, These are inspired words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoken through God's servants. And they are words, though not spoken to us, they are words spoken for us. So today we begin with the song of Zechariah. The visit of the angel to Zacharias broke four centuries of silence. Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist. And when Zacharias, the priest, was serving in the temple, the angel came to him, and with the coming of that angel, and with the words proclaimed by that angel to Zacharias, it broke those 400 years of silence. And in those centuries filled with deafening silence, as Israel suffered under successive empires, from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians to the Greeks, and then in the day of Zacharias, the Romans ruled Israel. And what we learn is that God is always working. God is always hearing, even in the silence. Our text today is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be 
Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you love this world so much that you sent your only begotten Son. And Father, the promise is whoever would believe in him, whoever would believe on that name, shall be saved. Father, in this season of Advent, the season in which we celebrate your coming, Lord, even as we look to that future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us live in the promise that you have given to us and made real to us through the coming of your Son, born of a virgin, born under the cruel oppression of an empire that did not acknowledge you. But Father, even in the birth of that baby, that baby king, that babe who became a man, who died as our Savior, that babe conquered even that great empire. And so today we live in a world, a world that you created, a world that you have placed us in, a world that you have charged us to go forth and to proclaim your gospel, the gospel that the Savior has come. And all who trust in him can know his salvation and his life. Father, help us to be a people faithful to that commission, faithful to that calling. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when we read the song of Zacharias, it sheds light on the prayer of Zacharias. So, what I just read you was the song that Zacharias sang, the words he uttered under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after his son was birthed, and they were getting ready to name the baby, and they assumed the name would be Zacharias. Zachariah, they assumed that that would be the name, but it was not because the angel had appeared to him and the angel had told him that the name of the child would be John. So when we read the, the song of Zacharias, it sheds light on the prayer that he prayed. God answered the prayer of Zacharias and of many others, and he also gave his wife Elizabeth a son. The son, a gift from God, was to be called John. The name John means Yahweh has been gracious. God's gracious gift has come to prepare the way for the Lord and for his salvation. And this truly is God's grace. So as we look at this song, the utterance of Zacharias, Luke chapter 1, verse 67, now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So it wasn't just Zacharias. <clears throat> In the preceding verses, as Luke begins his gospel, Luke begins with the story of, of Zacharias and Elizabeth. <clears throat> and they were childless because Elizabeth was barren. And the angel comes and tells Zacharias, the Lord has heard your prayer, and Elizabeth will give you a son. As the gospel 
account goes on, we see that that angel also then appears to Mary, tells Mary that she will also bear a child as a virgin, and she is told that her cousin Elizabeth is also pregnant. Then we see that Elizabeth, Mary travels to the house of Elizabeth, and when Mary walks in the door, the scripture account tells us that the child inside Elizabeth's womb leapt. When Mary comes in and greets Elizabeth, the scripture says the child inside of Elizabeth, that would be John the Baptist, leapt at the sound of Mary's voice. Why? Because of the Savior that Mary was carrying in her womb. And so Elizabeth also was filled with the Spirit as Zacharias was filled with the Spirit. And Zacharias prophesies. And the words of Zacharias were not his own words. These were inspired words by the Holy Spirit as he prophesied under the Spirit's power, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. As Zacharias understood through his visitation, through this visitation, through this prophetic word, that the Lord God of Israel, after long absence and long silence, has visited and redeemed his people. You have to know a bit about the history of Israel. So the last prophet, Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament, between Malachi and this occurrence right here with Zacharias in the temple, there were 400 years, what was called the 400 years of silence. There was no prophet there was no prophetic voice. It doesn't mean God was not working, because God was working. But there was no prophetic voice. God was silent for 400 years. But he wasn't inactive. He wasn't doing nothing. And so never confuse God's silence with God not working with God not knowing, with God not hearing, with God not making plans and working out his plan and his purpose. And that's what was happening in those 400 years of silence. And then Zechariah says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Luke chapter 1, verse 68 and 69. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn represents power and authority. This horn of salvation in the house of David is the promised Messiah, who had come from the line of David to sit on his throne eternally. This is what God promised David, that you will never lack a man sitting on your throne. This is Jesus Christ, the mighty and powerful Savior, the Son of David. 
And Zacharias goes on in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, this promise of salvation, this promise of a Savior was since the world began. Genesis 3.15, after the fall of man, God proclaims to the serpent and her seed. There will be enmity between her seed and your seed, he tells the serpent. And he will, the seed of the woman, he will crush your head, though you will bruise his heel. That was made at the very beginning, that prophecy, that promise of the coming Savior, the one who would bring salvation to the world that had just fallen into sin. So the coming of this horn of salvation in the house of David was spoken by the mouths of his holy prophets who have been speaking since the world began, even starting with Adam. Even when Adam came out of his death-like sleep and he saw the woman that God had made for him, and he said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall become one flesh. In other words, this is exactly what Paul quotes in Ephesians chapter 5. He quotes Genesis. He quotes the very words of Adam that says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and the two shall become one, one flesh. And this is the picture of Christ and his church. Eve is the church. Christ, Adam is Christ. And there, right there in the beginning, in the garden, when Adam utters those words, he is proclaiming in shadow what substance would one day come when Christ would come and he would redeem his people, he would redeem his bride, he would conquer the dragon and save his bride. He did as the last Adam what the first Adam did not do. The first Adam did not save his bride. He allowed her to fall. The last Adam came and he saved his bride and saved her from the fall. And so, Zacharias says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, and then from that time, through all of Israel's history, through all of the history of God's people, the prophets of God, the men and the women of God, have proclaimed this coming Savior, this coming salvation, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. In the garden, there was the serpent, the enemy of man, who hated man because man was created in God's image. And the purpose of that enemy in that garden was to bring about the fall of man. And he thought that he had succeeded in vanquishing God's plan and God's purpose through man. But in reality, God set him up for the ultimate fall. And God kept secret, kept hidden the mystery Paul says this in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, if the rulers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And it's not just the Caesars of the world, not just the high priests and the Caiaphases of the world, but the rulers of this world, the powers and the principalities who had real dominion and real authority in this world given to them by God 
Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And they did not know because God did not allow them to know. Because God had a plan before there was a beginning. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Never believe that the cross is God's plan B. God has no plan B. God has a plan and a purpose that can never fail, that stands for all eternity. And it was that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The salvation being proclaimed is salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate God's people. The animosity towards God's people is real, for it is part of the enmity between darkness and light. When we encounter people in the world, and they are contrary to what we believe, when they oppose the gospel, when they mock God, when they mock you and what you believe, It's not our place to become bitter toward them or to become angry toward them. The Bible doesn't say anger is a sin. It says don't be angry and sin. Don't don't be angry and sin. There is righteous anger. And righteous anger is something that we can and should have sometimes. We need to be careful with our anger because as human beings, we tend to fall into sinful anger more than we fall into righteous anger. This is why prayer is so important. This is why filling your heart and your mind with the Word of God is so important, so that we can rightly discern, so that we'll know when we are to be righteously angry versus when we need to ask God to give us the grace to forgive that person, to look beyond that offense that just occurred by that person in the world who is darkness And they can't see, they don't know the light, they can't see because they're blind. They're in darkness. But God's promise is that he saves us from our enemies and all who hate us. And they hate us because they are in darkness. Luke chapter 1, verse 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The salvation that is brought to God's people is born out of God's mercy, God's love. God promised mercy to the fathers. He remembered his holy covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listen to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 42. God says, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember the Lamb. God remembers. God does not forget. In the 400 years of silence leading up to this very moment when the angel appeared to Zacharias to proclaim the forerunner and ultimately the coming of the Messiah, there were many who thought that God had forgotten because God was so long silent. But God does not forget. God remembers his covenant covenant. He remembers to perform the mercy promised to the fathers. He remembers his holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. This oath is recorded for us in the scripture in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 17. 
Zacharias, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recalling, is proclaiming the oath that God swore to their father Abraham, to our father Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withhold your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. There is our salvation from our enemies, from those who hate us. God says that we will possess the gate of our enemies. Jesus said the church will prevail and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So not only that we should be saved from our enemies, verse 71, but that we should possess the gate of our enemies. And then he goes on in verse 74, Luke chapter 1, verse 74, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Fear involves torment, but perfect love casts out fear. God's perfect, God's complete love for us casts out fear. And then verse 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. God wasn't waiting for us to love him more correctly, more deeply before he loved us. We were his enemies. We were eternally separated from him apart from his grace. And God poured his love out upon us. And from that love he has for us, we are now able to love him. In the verse preceding that in 1 John chapter 4, it says, in this love has been perfected, that in the day of judgment we have boldness and confidence because as he is, so are we in this world. We can be sure. We can be sure that God's love gives us every reason to have confidence and that we can serve Him now without fear, not because we have somehow earned a position with God, but because his grace given to us in Jesus Christ, now through faith in Christ, we have been counted righteous. We have been made accepted in the beloved. And we can serve him without fear. The point of our deliverance is our service to the Lord. We serve him not in fear, but in love. His perfect, complete love for us has saved us and delivered us. And knowledge of his perfect love cast away that fear that wants to torment us, that wants to limit us, that wants to hinder us. But now, in Christ, in his perfect love for us, demonstrated by the Son coming to die for us, raised for us, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us, we serve him now without fear. 
Isaiah chapter 35, verses 9 and 10. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and singing and sighing. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the highway of salvation that Isaiah is speaking of. It is the highway. It is the higher way that God has placed us upon in Jesus Christ. And upon that highway, there is now no reason to fear as we serve him. The sighing and the sorrow that once was because of sin and death and darkness is no more for the child of God. It doesn't mean that we don't walk through darkness because we do. It doesn't mean that we do not have sorrow in this world. We do, but we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. For our hope is eternal. It is eternal in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 75, Luke chapter 1, verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Let me read verses 74 and 75. To grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. This is the song of Zacharias. He is uttering these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel. Do you hear the gospel in what Zacharias is proclaiming here? That we will serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. God's people in holiness and righteousness before the Lord our God all the days of our life is not our righteousness earned, but it is the righteousness that is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our righteousness earned. It is our righteousness that has been gifted to us. It's his righteousness that is now given to us in Christ. So up until this point, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, has proclaimed these words concerning the Messiah, the Christ. None of what has been spoken of here has been about John, his son. This has been about Christ. Now in verse 76, Zacharias will speak to and address his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Zacharias now switches from prophesying concerning the Messiah to his son, John, who is called a prophet of the highest. Remember the words of Jesus concerning John the Baptist. No greater one born of woman has there ever been, nor will there ever be. This is what Jesus said of John the Baptist. And in the 
Last book of the Old Testament, in the last book of our Old Testament in Malachi, Malachi prophesies the coming of Elijah before the day of the Lord, before the coming of the Messiah. So everyone was looking for Elijah to come before the coming of the Messiah. And here, John prophesies concerning his son, Child, you will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. So just like the prophets and the prophetic voices of old that had gone silent for 400 years between Malachi and this visitation, now, Zechariah says, child, you will be a prophet of the highest. Jesus goes further and says, there is no prophet greater than John the Baptist. Yet, we have no record of John the Baptist performing any miracles. Yet, we have many miracles performed by Elijah even more performed by Elisha. And even with Elijah and Elisha, there is a type and a shadow of the forerunner and the Messiah. Elijah was a type of John the Baptist. Elisha was a type of Christ. And we see here the fulfillment of it with the birth of John the Baptist and the pronunciation of his father that he will be called the prophet of the highest. Jesus affirming this in speaking those words concerning John the Baptist. John will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ to prepare his way. That's why there's no prophet greater than John. Because John was given the privilege to be that forerunner, to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. Zacharias goes on and he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. In preparing that way, John will give knowledge of salvation to the people. He will proclaim a message of repentance and remission of sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, verse 78, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. Salvation, again, is not what we have earned. Salvation has come to us by the tender mercy of our God. I know you know that. But do you know when we're tempted to forget that? We're tempted to forget that when we're dealing with people who hate us. The very types of people that Zachariah says the Savior has come to save us from. 
the enemies of God who hate God. And sometimes when we're dealing with people who have hate in their heart toward God, toward us, we're tempted to forget that salvation has come to us by the tender mercies of God. I have to remember that I was once God's enemy. I was once opposed to God. I once was contrary to Him because I once was darkness. And when I deal with people who are still in darkness, who are still blind, I have to remember that was me one time. I sounded just as foolish, if not more foolish. I did just as wickedly, if not more wickedly. I stood opposed to God as much, if not more, than they are. And I cannot say today that I am saved by what I have done because I suddenly came to my senses. No, I didn't come to my senses. God delivered me from my sin is what happened. Not because I begged Him to, not because I wanted Him to, But even when I did not want him to, he did. Even when I was his enemy, he died for me. When I was blind and dead in darkness, he saved me. Not because he saw some good in me, because there was no good in me. And there is no good in you, and there is no good in anyone else. There is none good but one, Jesus said, and that is God. And it is that good God, in his tender mercy, by his grace, that saved you and that saved me. And if you count yourself a follower of Christ today, it is by his grace and his grace alone that you may do that. And so as we engage people in this world who frustrate us, who anger us, please remember that you once were just like them, and but by the grace of God, so you still would be today. And that is true for all of us. Through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Through God's tender mercy, that salvation has dawned and come to us. The word translated day spring here literally means dawn or sunrise. That's what day spring means. This is a title for the Messiah. He is the sunrise. He is the dawn. He is the day spring. He is the one who dispels the darkness and brings the light of life and the light of day. He is the dawn, the sunrise, the day spring and bringing light into the world that is in darkness and the world is still in darkness. You're walking in the light if you are in Christ. But there are many in the world who still walk in darkness and they need the light that you have received by His grace. The day spring pictures the glorious rising of the sun. Just think of a sunrise. It's it's what God gives us every day as a reminder of who He is and what He has done for us. Every morning, the sun rises, whether you see it or not, whether you think about it or not, think about that. 
Every morning the sun rises and it has nothing to do with you. And God's not waiting for you to say, oh yeah, I'm watching God. Let's see that beautiful sunrise. No. It doesn't matter whether you're watching or not. The sun rises. And you know it's risen because it's light. And that's God's grace. That's God's reminder every day that he has sent the day spring, that the dawn, the sunrise has come. Salvation has come. This is what we celebrate at Advent. This is why we celebrate Advent. This is why we purposefully take these Sundays to remember Advent because this is the celebration of the coming of Christ. This is what Christmas is about. This is why we have a Christmas parade and not just a very merry holiday parade. Because this is about Jesus. This is about Christ. And whether the critic or whether the atheist realizes it or not, guess what? The sun rose this morning and they are benefactors. They're they're benefiting from the rise of that sun. They're benefiting from the day spring and they don't even realize it. But you do, or you should, because you are God's people. And you should understand the significance of the sunrise, of the day spring, bringing light into the darkness, because you were, I was once darkness, but no longer. Now we are light in the Lord, and we are to walk as children of light. And as we walk as children of light, we are to Shine that light so that those around us in darkness can have the hope of that light and that life. And this is why we should be reminded every day, but by the grace of God, there go I also. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the very way of peace. Why has the day spring come from on high? To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The picture here is of one who is in darkness. When darkness descends, this is hard for us to comprehend because we live in a world that is so filled with light even when it's dark. I mean, we even now have what's called light pollution. You do realize in in the day of John the Baptist and Jesus, when they walked the earth, there was no such thing as light pollution, right? I mean, no one could even imagine what light pollution would be. In fact, they they prayed for light pollution. (laughs) You know, they, they lived in such darkness, they wanted light. I can't get enough light. I mean, you know, the next time your electricity goes out, go, go ahead and see how much light you can get in your house with candles and little oil lamps. It's not a lot. And so this is a big deal. This statement here, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What you have to picture here is someone, picture a traveler who's traveling, not in their electric car with the high beams on, but by foot. And you walk until there is no more light. Now, if you planned your trip well, you're going to walk to the next city so you'll have a place to spend the night 
with light. But if you didn't plan your trip well or something happened and you're on your journey and you get caught out at night and it gets dark, unless you have some moonlight, it's dark. And they don't have roads like we have roads and nice concrete sidewalks like we have. You're just, you're out there on a footpath trying to get to your destination. And now it's dark. And what travelers would do in that case is they would sit in the darkness because it would be too perilous to try to walk in the dark. You don't know where you're going. You have no way to guide your feet in the way of peace. So you sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death waiting for light to dawn. Because unlike the days we live in now, you know, our kids can go out and camp in the yard or camp in the back pasture, uh, and it's kind of scary for them because it's dark, and we let them do that because we're not worried about lions, tigers, or bears going out there and eating them because they just don't exist here. And even if there are coyotes, you don't worry about a coyote eating your, your, your kid, you know? Um, I mean, some people might, but don't have that fear. But back in that day, there were wild beasts. There were things out there that would get you. So when you're traveling and you lose light, you sit there in the dark and in the shadow of death, and you're waiting for the light to dawn so that you can continue on your journey and that you would know what direction to guide your feet. Because when the light comes, now you know which is the way of peace, which is the way of safety. In the darkness, it's unknown if one is guiding his feet into the way of peace and safety or if he's guiding his feet to destruction and death. Only in the light can one discern what direction is the way of peace leading to salvation. People very often that we encounter are in darkness. They, they don't know the way to peace and safety. They may think they do. They may enjoy living dangerously, and they don't even realize just how dangerously they may be living. There is nothing more dangerous than to live life apart from the Savior. Nothing. The dawning of the day spring gives us light. In God's grace, John came. That, that ended, verse 79, ends the song of Zacharias. And it ends with this theme of light. The day spring has come. The light has come. Now we can see which way our feet need to go. In God's grace, John came as the forerunner, the one who would prepare the way and point to the one who is the salvation of the world. As John would later say in, during his ministry, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was the prayer of Zacharias fulfilled. The coming of the Savior and salvation. The coming of the promised Savior was like the dawning of the sun that dispels the deep darkness of night. 
With the dawning of the sun comes the light of life to guide our feet into the way of peace and salvation. This is why Jesus is called the light of the world. He shines the light of salvation for those who have eyes to see. In the silence, God answers prayer. I want to go back to the beginning of this story. Gospel, the Gospel of Luke begins with this story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 7 informs us that they had no child, for Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in age. Their desire for a child may not have been gone, but the hope of a child was. Not because they did not trust God, but because they did trust God. Are you following me? It's not that Zacharias and Elizabeth didn't want a child. It's not that they didn't believe God was capable of giving them a child. It's that at their advanced age, they had resolved in faith to accept that God's providence was that they would not have a child. So they weren't, they weren't just there in bitter disappointment. It really was faith. It was because of their faith. It was because of their faith that they had come to accept the providence of God concerning them. This was... This is what we call, or what the scripture calls, godliness with contentment. It's not that we should give up on our prayers. We should not. But we should hold our prayers in the proper place, with the proper tension. And that has nothing to do with unbelief. That has to do with understanding our place in God's story, in his story. I believe Zacharias and Elizabeth understood their place in his story. And though they wanted a child, they weren't anticipating a child any longer. But they did anticipate God's promises based on God's word and God's prophets that had been since the beginning. It's easy to think that the prayer of Zacharias heard by God was a prayer for a child. And you'll hear many people talk about this. The angel says, God has heard your prayer. Oh, it must be for a child because Elizabeth's going to have a baby. I don't believe that's what the, the prayer was that, that God heard. Obviously, God knew Zacharias had prayed that prayer many times. But I think the prayer that God heard was not the prayer for a child. No doubt that they had prayed for a child for many years, through many prayers. But when you consider how old they were, their prayer for a child would have been long put away. Those prayers were not put away in bitter disappointment, but in resolved faith in God and His providence for their lives. There was another prayer, though, that Zacharias had been praying how do we know what that prayer is? The Bible doesn't tell us what it is, but yet it does. So remember, the best interpretation of the Scripture is the Scripture. The way we know 
the prayer of Zacharias is by reading the song of Zacharias. The song of Zacharias tells us exactly what Zacharias' prayer was. The song of Zacharias sheds light on just what prayer Zacharias had been praying. God answered the prayer of Zacharias and of many others. In the process, he also gave his wife Elizabeth a son. Remember, God never forgets. God remembered. God gave Elizabeth a son, not just because he knew Elizabeth wanted a son, but because the son would be part of the answer to the prayer that Zacharias had been praying. The prayer that God was bringing about, an answer beyond what anyone could imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's not just your mansion in heaven that we're talking about here. This is about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is about the salvation that God would bring through his only begotten son. Yes, the Jews in, in John's day and the Jews in Jesus' day were looking for a Savior. It's true. They all were expecting a Savior. They could read the prophecies of Daniel. They could do math just like you can do math. And they knew that the hour, the timetable was then and that it was time for the Messiah. The problem with them was that they were looking for a Messiah that was not God's Messiah. They were looking for their own Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah that they created in their own image, from their own vain imaginations, from their own fleshly desires. They wanted a Messiah who would come and destroy the Romans and, and give them back the kingdom and make them head over everyone else. So when the Messiah came, they didn't recognize him. But when you read the song of Zechariah, you realize what Zechariah had been praying for was the true Messiah, the true Savior. He was praying for real salvation, not just a temporal Counterfeit. So this son, this promised son, this long-forward son, was part of the answer that God would bring. This son, a gift from God, was to be called John. Yahweh had indeed been gracious. He was not only sending the greatest prophet born of woman, he was sending his son to save the world. Yahweh's gracious gift has come to prepare the way for the Lord Messiah, the Savior of the world. The prayer of Zacharias birthed the song of Zacharias. Luke 1.18 reveals that Zacharias had moved on in his praying for a child. He was in disbelief when the angel said to him that Elizabeth will have a son. And he says, well, how is that going to happen? I'm an old man. You, when you read the Gospels, pay attention to the difference between what happened to Zacharias when he questioned the angel versus Mary when she questioned the angel. There's, there's a difference, and rightly so. He says, how can this be since I am so old? He asked the angel. 
For his disbelief, he is struck mute for a period of time, but even this was used for the glory of God. When God unstops his mouth, he is able to declare the very prophetic song recorded for us in Luke's gospel account. If Zacharias was not praying for a child, then what was he praying for? His song gives us the answer. The song of Zacharias informs us concerning the prayer of Zacharias. He was praying for salvation and a Savior, and God answered his prayer. Our songs should inform and be birthed by our prayers. What you sing is important. The song you carry in your heart is important. And it comes out in various ways. And sometimes when we pay attention to the songs that come out of our heart, we realize that we need to write new songs and put new songs in our heart because sometimes the songs that come out aren't, aren't the songs that should be coming out. We're in a very similar place that Zacharias found himself in. We live in a world and among people that need the salvation of the Lord. We live in a world and among a people where darkness is very prevalent. Zacharias, like us all, had personal needs and prayers, but his prayers were not consumed with his personal needs. Did you hear me, church? I'm going to say that again. Zacharias, like us all, had personal needs and prayers. But his prayers were not consumed with his personal needs. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God does not care about our personal needs because he cares very deeply about them. And he knows each and every one of them better than we know ourselves. Our prayers must transcend our personal needs. That was the case with Zacharias. His prayers transcended his personal needs, his personal desires, and rose to a greater need. As Zacharias ministered in the temple before the Lord, his prayer was centered in the needs of God's people. The nation needed salvation. The people needed a Savior. Zacharias knew this, and so he prayed that God would send salvation. <clears throat> God answered that prayer then. And guess what? God still answers that prayer today. Excuse me. <coughs> God still answers that prayer today. Like Zacharias, we need to be faithfully, we need to faithfully offer our fervent and earnest prayers for salvation. Yes, for our personal needs and the needs of others, for one another. But we can't lose sight of the fact that this world needs salvation. We need revival, reformation, and renewal in the church and in our nation. That will not happen apart from our prayers. And never think that because you live in Taylor, Texas, or never think because your name is not known to whoever, your prayers don't matter. Your prayers aren't powerful. Your name is known to the most important person they can be known by. Your name is known by the Lord. And more importantly, 
not only is your name known by the Lord, but the Lord has given his very name to you. And in giving you that name, he has given you power and authority. Your prayers matter. Your prayers are powerful. And don't let the enemy ever convince you they are not because they are. Our prayers should inform our songs. The songs we sing in our corporate worship are very important. We need to sing songs that reflect our prayers and the corporate warfare we wage each week as we assemble together. Our prayers should inform the song we carry in our heart. Songs birthed by the Spirit to bring forth His truth, to give witness to His work of salvation. Just as Zacharias' heart yearned for salvation, so our hearts must yearn for it. Not because we need it, but because the world around us needs it. And if you know that you have salvation in Jesus Christ, then live with grateful and thankful hearts every day that you have been saved by His grace. But don't lose sight of those around you who do not have that salvation, who desperately need it. We must yearn for the salvation for our enemies as well as for our brothers. We must discern the magnitude of what people are facing when they face a future apart from the Savior. Hell is real. We must love people as Christ loved them, even when we were enemies. When we were His enemies, He gave Himself for our salvation. This is why Jesus said, love your enemies. How do we love them? We pray for their salvation. We don't approve of their bad behavior. We don't approve of their sin. This is what the world thinks. This is what too many Christians think. Too many Christians think loving your enemy is, is putting a stamp of approval on their sin and not offending them. That's not love. That's actually sinful and hateful. If you truly love someone, then love them enough to tell them the truth, even if it may hurt, even if it may offend you. Because if you truly love them, then you will never approve of their sin. You will love them, but love will never look like an approval of sin. It can't. Otherwise, it's not love. We love people as Christ loved them, even when, even when they were enemies of God. Advent is the celebration of His coming. We're not waiting for Christ to come. He has come and He came bringing salvation. We've been entrusted with that message of salvation we call the gospel. And good news, it truly is. We must remember that we were once darkness, just like the enemies of the gospel are now. In our prayers and in our songs, we must seek to see those enemies turn from darkness to light. That is the only way we will change that's the only way we'll change our world. That's the only way we'll see change in the church, change in our city, change in our county, in our state, our nation, and change in the world. We get so focused on all these things high up, and we forget about the very world we live in right here. It all starts in your own heart, in your families, in this church, in this city, 
And it moves out from there. Advent is the celebration of the Savior who has come. And in coming, he has entrusted to us the long, hard work of transformation that must take place so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will one day fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is what the prophet proclaimed, and it will come to pass. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's stand. Here is your charge. As we've looked at the song of Zacharias today, I hope you realize that your prayers matter and your songs matter. They both come from your heart, or they should. Zacharias faithfully prayed and served the Lord. He never imagined how God would use his prayer. He had long resolved that many of his prayers would go unanswered, or at least the answer was not what he had hoped for. God heard every one of those prayers, and he answered them. Not in the way or in the time that Zacharias may have imagined, but God is faithful, and we should remember that. God knows what he is working in those times when we can only hear his silence. We hear our prayers, and we hear God's silence. For 400 years, Israel heard God's silence, not because he was not working, and not because he was no one was praying, but because his work had not yet reached its divinely appointed time. We must not underestimate the power of prayer. God is, has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. That means his people must pray. You must pray. You have been given the privilege to pray, to come to the very throne of grace with boldness and with confidence by a new and living way, which is by the blood of Jesus. Our prayers must transcend our personal needs, not exclude them, but transcend them. But certainly we must discern the greater needs of the body of his people and of the world around us. It is the need for salvation we may pray for it and work for it and let it be the song of our hearts. That's what we need to do. Work for it, pray for it. Let it be the song of your heart that we will see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth in your very life, even as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen.